right about now. The Year View Mirror. Check it out now. It's Year View Mirror. Right about now. It's Year View Mirror. <laughs> Kenny, you are so fat boy. <laughs> hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Year View Mirror with Ken and Cliff. We are two high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and popular culture. In each episode, we aim to create a big picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, TV shows, and songs. In this episode, we're focusing on the year 1998, a year most notably remembered for a well-placed cigar and steroid-induced home runs. We'll be featuring three films, American History X, The Truman Show, and Saving Private Ryan. We'll be discussing two TV debuts, Sex in the City and That 70s Show, and we'll be hearing songs from Lauryn Hill, the group Next, Britney Spears, and The Chicks. But first, a quick review of the most important stories from 1998. In the summer of 98, two American embassies in Africa were the targets of coordinated truck bombings, one in Tanzania and one in Kenya. Both explosions leveled both buildings, killing a combined 224 people, including 12 Americans, and injuring over 4,000 people. The attacks were linked to local members of an Islamic Jihad group with links to Osama bin Laden and his terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda. Back in the United States, Major League Baseball received a major bump in popularity when Mark McGuire from the St. Louis Cardinals and Sammy Sosa from the Chicago Cubs battled it out to see who could surpass one of baseball's longest-running records, 61 home runs in a season previously set by Roger Maris 37 years before. The race was neck and neck, but McGuire finally hit his 62nd home run first and finished the season with 70 home runs, which would then be surpassed by Barry Bonds years later. In the end, all three baseball players would be implicated for steroid use and their records will forever have an asterisk next to them. But the biggest story of 1998 was between the President of the United States at the time, Bill Clinton, and a young presidential intern named Monica Lewinsky. Their sexual relationship began in 1995, but secretly recorded tapes revealed that Lewinsky lied to investigators about her relationship with the President relative to an ongoing sexual harassment case connected to Clinton and Paula Jones. But all hell broke loose in early 1998 when Clinton ended a nationally televised speech with the statement, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Further investigation led to charges of perjury and to the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998 by the U.S. House of Representatives. He was subsequently acquitted on all impeachment charges of perjury and obstruction of justice in a 21-day Senate trial. 1998 was an exceptional year for movies, and we couldn't help ourselves but pick three movies which were not just commercially successful, but all three were high-quality films with heavy-duty themes. The biggest box office success of 1998, by the way, was Titanic, which broke all kinds of records, but that was officially released the year before. We'll definitely cover that in our 1997 episode. The three we're covering today are Saving Private Ryan, a World War II movie, American History X, a contemporary drama about racism and hatred, and The Truman Show, a comedy drama about reality television. And that's where we're going to start. The Truman Show was directed by Peter Weir, and it starred Jim Carrey as Truman Burbank, 
a man who grew up living an ordinary life that, unbeknownst to him, takes place on an enormous theatrical set populated by actors for a reality TV show all about him. Let's listen to a clip from the film's original trailer. What if your world was make-believe? Cue the sign. While the world he inhabits is a counterfeit. I'm not allowed to talk to you. That's how I look. Not your type. There's nothing fake about Truman himself. What if you didn't know it? Until now. By 1998, social media wasn't even a thing yet. And reality TV was just beginning to take off. Back in 1973, PBS aired an experimental reality TV series entitled An American Family. And in 1979, NBC broadcast a series called Real People, which ran for four seasons with some degree of success. But that's about it for reality TV. Don't forget about the MTV's The Real World, which debuted in 1992 and it was a huge success. And then they followed it up with Road Rules in 1995, also a big success. But when The Truman Show came out in 1998, it looked and felt outrageous and strange. In fact, Laura Linney, who played Truman's wife in the film, later said of her experience on the film, quote, We would laugh about how unrealistic some of it all seemed, unquote. The Truman Show would end up being one of the most prescient movies of the 1990s. In addition to forecasting the reality TV craze, the film predicted several other societal trends. We're going to listen to a couple of very short clips from the show which address each of these trends. The first was the scope of modern product placement. You can't stand me. That's not true. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Another trend was privacy invasion, which of course pretty much the entire movie was based on. In this clip, we and the show's audience watch and listen as Truman and his best friend share an intimate bonding moment. But what Truman doesn't know is his best friend is being fed dialogue from the show's director while a mass audience looks on. Well, the point is, I'd gladly walk in front of traffic for you. Point is, I would gladly step in front of traffic for you, Truman. And the last trend was the dilemma of whether to live for yourself or an audience, be it television or social media. However, unlike Truman, those that publish or broadcast their lives on social media or reality TV have chosen to broadcast their lives to a wider, invisible audience via social media postings or omnipresent cameras and microphones that capture every action and word. There's a very cynical part of me that wonders if some of us might just be thrilled to discover we are the star of our own reality TV show. Any thoughts on that, Cliff? I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with wanting to be watched or paid attention to or adored or looked over or remembered, etc. I know it's easy to get caught up with the complete shit show the Truman Show predicted. And I can't believe it's me, not you, mm -hmm. who's saying all of this, mm -hmm. but we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge what a tender, touching film this is. I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with that? Because I really can't believe I'm the one who has to point out the tender, touching film. I mean, it's an allegory for the human experience. Truman, he's born into a world not of his making and beyond his understanding. 
lives a life that is in large part controlled by others, and he struggles to break free of the constraints that have been put on him by society in an attempt to be in the world on his own terms. Mm -hmm. And while you and others might see Christophe, the creator and director of the show, as some evil monster that must be stopped, I think you are being reductive in doing so. Ken, you and your wife raised three children. Didn't you guys do everything you could to make sure your boys hung out with the right friends, attended the right schools, dated the right people? How is what Christoph did to and for Truman any different than what you and your wife did to and for your kids? Well, it's a good point. I mean, I'm not going to necessarily dismiss this connection that you're trying to make between Christoph and and parenthood. I mean, I'm not. Tr- obvi- I'm not. The, obviously, one is is a, a biological connection, and the other one is like a. It's kind of like a crass entertainment connection. I mean, Christoph only exists for a TV show, and his creation, Truman, uh, although not biologically his own, he sees himself. In a sort of parental godly figure. I was deeply moved at how prescient this film was in predicting the social media chaos that our society has transformed into. But also, there is something really profoundly negative that comes out of the social media experience. And we have seen that, especially over the last four years of Trump presidency and the degree of misinformation, deliberate misinformation that people just sort of naturally buy into because of our ignorance and our inability to sort of dig a little bit deeper to find out the truth of things. We just accept what is on the internet at its face value. And I think that has made our society worse. And as an audience, we didn't just blow past the Truman Show's cautionary subtext. We've elected a reality star as our president. Yes. Hey, another film from 1998 that we want to get to is the movie American History X, a very heavy-duty drama directed by Tony Kay and starring Edward Norton. The story follows two brothers from Los Angeles who are involved in the white power skinhead and neo-Nazi movements. The older brother, played by Norton, serves three years in prison for voluntary manslaughter. He becomes rehabilitated during his incarceration and then tries to prevent his younger brother from being further indoctrinated. Let's listen to a clip from the film's official trailer. He was his mother's hope. He's gone. You don't know the world your children are living in. His father's legacy. It's everywhere I look now. What? This affirmative black shit. The white man marches on. All that anger. All that hate. Has anything you've done made your life better? The screenwriter for the film, David McKenna, said the following about his motivation for writing the script. Quote, the point I tried to make in the script is that a person is not born a racist. It is learned through their environment and the people that surround you. The question that intrigued me is, why do people hate and how does one go about changing that? My premise was that hate starts in the family. Cliff, you already know about my personal history, about growing up in a racist household. This idea that McKenna described of not being born racist is a lesson I've made a point of instilling in my own kids, as well as to my own students that I've taught over the last 14 years. I was raised by a single mom who was raised in a racist household, so no surprise, she would raise her children to think like her. 
It's painful to even admit today, but I was definitely a racist kid growing up. It wasn't until I actually started to meet black people and when I started to read and learn about the history of racism that I began to see the flaws in that way of thinking and then made a purposeful effort to change my mindset. I'm not proud of that part of my past, but I am proud that I had the power to change and then I have the opportunity to impart some degree of wisdom into younger minds. Yeah. But your mother was racist and came from racist. Well, my parents were not, nor were their parents. Mm -hmm. And that seems to have made the difference because I can never remember a time when I thought people who looked different than me were different than me and deserved my scorn. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's weird. I just, I, 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 I don't, I don't say this because I want to, because I think we're all, we're all biased. Um, and we are prejudiced. We cannot help it as human beings, right? That's there correct. are times that, That's correct. you know, that there are going to be where you have those, those feelings, but that idea of just having that overall attitude that people are different races, that mm -hmm. I don't even believe in that word race, right? Mm -hmm. I, it's just, a, it's a social construct. For me, the film's most important message is the power of transformation, the ability to start from somewhere that's comfortable and content, but transform into someone else divorced from that past and ready to help others find their point of transformation. Let's listen to a clip towards the end of the film when Derek gets out of prison and confronts his old mentor and the gang's ideological overlord. See, things have changed since you've been gone, Derek. You talk about organization? Wait till you see what we've done with the internet. We've got every gang from Seattle to San Diego working together now. They're not competing anymore. They're consolidated. The only thing we lack is a little overall leadership. Done with it, Cam. Yeah, well, I know you grew out of that shaved head bullshit a long time ago. I am done with it. All that bullshit out there and all your bullshit, too. I'm out. You go cool off. Get laid. Do something. Get your head on straight, then I'll talk to you. Yeah, but it doesn't even really matter if I don't, does it? Because you got the next crop all lined up and ready to go, you fucking chicken hawk. I don't know if you caught it, but did you hear the line from the Overlord character when he proudly says to Derek, wait till you see what we've done with the internet? I mean, let's not forget, this is 1998, folks. The internet is still a baby, very much. And the film was yet so prescient about how the internet is only going to fan the flames of hate and misinformation. Yeah. This time around, watching this, my hair stood up on my arm when I, when I heard that line yeah. and thought about it. Holy shit. Yeah. Didn't know that it was coming in 1998. Yeah. But wow. Yeah. Although this film was intended as a parable about the evils of hate, I couldn't help but think American society would only become racially more polarized in the years and decades after its release. And specifically here, I'm thinking Charlottesville, Virginia, 2017, and even the glorification of a hater like Donald Trump. I mean, consider this line from the movie spoken by Derek early in the film. We need to open our eyes. There's over two million illegal immigrants bedding down in this state tonight. Our border policy is a joke. So is anybody surprised that south of the border they're laughing at us? Laughing at our laws? Yeah. That line, Cliff, could have easily come from Donald Trump as easily as a fictional white supremacist Nazi in a Hollywood 1998 movie. Uh, any thoughts on this, Cliff? You know the reality has become much, much, much worse than what's on the screen. Yeah. We are and always have been a nation of others. Yet American History X is sadly the only story America has ever known. The last film we're going to talk about is regarded by many people as one of the greatest war movies ever made. 
and, and I want to get your opinion on that at some point in our discussion here. Saving Private Ryan was directed by Steven Spielberg and starred Tom Hanks. The movie begins with D-Day, the invasion of Normandy in World War II, and then follows a team of soldiers led by Captain John Miller, played by Hanks, as they search for Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon. He is the last surviving brother of four brothers. Three other brothers were killed in action during the weeks of the D-Day invasion. Let's listen to a short clip from the film's official trailer. We're looking for a private change, Ryan. I don't know anything about Ryan. I don't care. Finding him so he can go home. If that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well then, that's my mission. I mean, where's the sense of risking the lives of the eight of us to save one guy? I hope Mama Ryan's real fucking happy knowing that little Jimmy's life is a little bit more important than two of our guys. Just know that every man I kill, the farther away from home I feel. Cliff, I don't know about you, but I've used this film, and I know a number of teachers have used this film, to cover World War II when we end up teaching it. However, I only show the first 50-minute sequence of the film that starts out the film, uh, which in fact covers the invasion of the Normandy beaches. That sequence is considered one of the most realistic depictions of not just the D-Day invasion, but of the overall horror and brutality of war itself. In fact, there was a warning put out by the Hollywood studio that made the movie that war veterans could be traumatized by the movie footage. The movie does a marvelous job of capturing why soldiers fight wars at all, and it's captured in this scene we're about to hear. It's toward the end of the movie, and it's a conversation between Miller and Sergeant Horvath, played by the actor Tom Sizemore, both of who are reflecting on what could be their impending death and what the purpose of their mission is really about. Part of me thinks the kid's right. What's he done to deserve this? He wants to stay here, fine. Let's leave him and go home. Yeah. But another part of me thinks, what if by some miracle we stay and actually make it out of here? Someday we might look back on this and decide that saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole god-awful shitty mess. Here's why I think this scene is the essence of this story. Throughout the film, the idea that eight men must sacrifice their lives in order to save one is constantly examined. Horvath, the toughest motherfucking soldier of the eight, comes to the realization that their suicidal mission is simply a metaphor for the larger reason of why men fight wars at all. That war is shitty, and maybe sacrificing their lives provides an opportunity for others to live theirs. Sergeant Horvath might have nailed it for why men fought this war. But the same can't be said for most wars. We fight, sadly, because might makes right. And I gotta say this, Ken, I gotta say this. Tom Hanks, he failed at his mission. He was supposed to find Private Ryan and get him the hell out of danger. But instead... He decides to stick around with him when Ryan refuses to leave and wait for some Germans to attack them. It's noble for Ryan to want to stay with his buddies. And it's noble for Tom Hanks to want to stay and help his fellow soldiers. But orders, Ken, are fucking orders. Mm -hmm. If Ryan had died and Hanks' character had lived, they would have court-martialed his ass. Mm -hmm. Now that's the movie I want to watch. 
Let's transition over to television from 1998, and specifically two shows that debuted that year, Sex and the City and That 70s Show. That 70s Show was a period sitcom that aired on Fox for eight seasons. The series focused on the lives of six teenage friends living in fictional Point Place, Wisconsin, from 1976 to 1979. Pretty much my entire high school life, Cliff. Let's listen to a clip from the very first episode, which involved Eric trying to sneak beer from his parents' party. Make sure to listen for the cultural references sprinkled throughout the scene. Red, a Toyota? Yeah, it's mine. I tell you, the last time I was that close to a Japanese machine, it was shooting at me. <laughs> well, honey, it is the gas crisis. What can you do? And you know, Bob, those SOBs at the dealership offered me a lousy $400 trade-in on the Vista Cruiser. Eh, what you gonna do? It'll rust in the driveway before I trade it in. Honey, it is rusting in the driveway. <laughs> hey, Bob, I'll take the Cruiser off your hands. I don't care if it's a pump sucker. What you got there, Eric? Beer? <laughs> Just sitting, you know, around. Well, put them away, son. Why, tend to, sir. Cliff, believe it or not, I was only a casual fan of this show. <laughs> I find that interesting that you're not a huge fan of the show, yeah. since the time period, as you just pointed out, perfectly aligns with your own high school youth experience. Yeah. You would have been the same age as the characters on this show. Yeah. That nostalgia for the 70s has been covered by shows like The Wonder Years, The Get Down, and The Deuce. So what was it about the 70s that stimulates such strong nostalgia for that time, but strangely, not in you? The 70s were a weird period, not just for me, but even assessing it as a history teacher, the 70s was an odd confluence of historical stuff. On one hand, was kind of fun, kind of comfortable... But on the other hand, kind of fucked up. The Cold War, don't forget, was still raging, but the paranoia of the 50s and 60s had somewhat subsided. The Vietnam War petered out by the middle of the decade, but it left this bitter taste in America about being misled by our government and losing to a third world nation that would end up being communist anyway. Nixon and Watergate left the country with a deep distrust in our government. Personally, I don't have fond memories of the 70s, but that may be more based on the fact that my parents got divorced, my father skipped out never to be seen again. I was a nerd, Cliff, terrified of girls. Some things never change. And uncertain about who I was or what I wanted to be. But the one thing that got me through that period was music, TV, and movies. Quite simply, the cultural output of the 70s was the best thing about that decade. The popularity of this show is not only attributable to nostalgia for the 70s, however. Like The Wonder Years, which we discussed a couple episodes ago, that 70s show tackles problems that are universal to teens of any decade. Things like relationship drama, issues with school, difficult domestic situations, trying to get beer from your parents. I yeah. Mean, we've all been there. Right. The casting is damn near impeccable. I agree. Ashton Kutcher... Mila Kunis, Topher Grace, and Laura Prepon all got their big breaks playing with teenagers on this show. But for me, it's really the actors who play the adults that bring the biggest comedic uh, bangs. Yeah. Deborah Jo Roop, Rupp, Kurtwood Smith, Tanya Roberts, Don Stark, and Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong are all hilarious. And it's easy to see bits of one's own parents in their characters. I'm not going to go so far to say that that 70s show is a great show. But it's a pretty damn good one. 
And for those of us who lived through the 70s, it's a funny reminder of the way things used to be. Haircuts and t-shirts and the shoes they wear from the music they listen to, the drugs they take, the situations they get into. It's just like everything is like saying all of this happened in the 70s. Like yeah. It's like they're just throwing, trying to throw every single thing at it. So not only is it just funny because you could take them out of the 70s and these characters would be funny. The Red Foreman would be funny with his kids just as much. But it also then adds into, for those people who had lived through the 70s, you're like, wow, I remember that. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That's how things really were back then. Yeah, I don't know what it is about why I was never attracted to that show while it was on the air. I've seen it, of course, in bits and pieces when it's been in syndication, but I really should make a point to see them in the order in, in which they were broadcast. Let's talk about another successful TV debut from 1998, and that's Sex in the City, which was set and filmed in New York City. And one of your favorite cinematic cities, Cliff, uh, New York it. City. Fuck New York. <laughs> An adaptation of Candace Bushnell's newspaper column and 1996 book anthology of the same name. The show follows the lives of a group of four women, three in their mid-30s and one in her 40s, who, despite their different personalities and ever-changing sex lives, remain inseparable and confide in each other. Let's listen to a promo spot that was created for the series' inaugural season in 1998. Are you ready for sex? What a tempting thought. Then you're ready for HBO's Golden Globe-winning comedy series, Sex in the City. Starring Golden Globe winner Sarah Jessica Parker is the comedy series everyone is talking about and has the critics panting. Sex and the City is witty, sophisticated, with an impeccable cast, said the St. Petersburg Times. Brutally honest and hilariously funny, declared the San Francisco Examiner. Sex and the City, the titillating comedy series that has been called fresh and funny, intelligent and provocative, and downright sizzling. Oh, pretty, that's great. Before Sex and the City debuted in 1998, women had to be satisfied seeing themselves portrayed on the small screen for the most part as mothers, wives, secretaries, and the like. In other words, in your traditional female roles. Sure, half of the main cast of a show like Friends was made up of women, but none of whom were wives, mothers, secretaries, etc. But Rachel, Monica, and Phoebe, they all had to share their screen time with Joey, Ross, and Chandler, and Monica and Rachel were roommates, making it seem more like they were college students sharing a room right. than grown independent women. I get it. The Golden Girls had four female leads, of course, but they were all older than dirt. Yeah. So the episodes didn't re revolve around their sex lives. Plus, that show, it fucking blew chunks. I never saw it. it you've never seen I've it? I've never seen oh, it, it, Golden it, Girls. It, it, the four women that made up the main cast of Sex in the City, however, were all single, at least for most of the show's run. They all lived alone. They all had non-secretarial jobs. Carrie was a journalist, Charlotte worked at an art gallery, Samantha was in public relations, and Miranda was a lawyer. And they all had lots and lots of sex with multiple partners. Mm -hmm. The series had multiple continuing storylines that tackled relevant and modern social issues such as sexuality, safe sex, promiscuity, femininity, and unexpected pregnancy, while exploring the differences between friendships and romantic relationships. Many saw the show as a giant leap forward for womankind. Academic critics, however, disagree on whether Sex in the City was truly anti-feminist, feminist, or post-feminist. You know how all those different I ones you can. I have no idea, <laughs> nor am I in the mood for a lesson. 
<laughs> Some argued whatever label was applied to the show, it offered an important contribution to ongoing dialogue, and that because it shows women in a world where they can be feminine, attractive, and feminist at the same time, the series gives a forum to a renewed post-feminist debate. But the series did have its detractors. Tanya Gold of the Daily Telegraph stated, Sex in the City is to feminism what sugar is to dental care. The first clue is in the opening credits of the television show. Carrie is standing in a New York street in a ballet skirt, the sort that toddlers wear. She is dressed unmistakably as a child. And because she is a sex columnist on a newspaper, a bus wearing a huge photo of her in a tiny dress trundles past. It reads, Carrie Bradshaw knows good sex. And there, before any dialogue hits your ears, you have the two woeful female archetypes that Sex in the City loves. Woman as sex object and woman as child. End quote. As far as a show that was kind of unlike any other show we had seen before, Sex in the City, it says it all in the title. Yeah. It's sex, it's going on in the city, it's about sex, it's about relationship. And, and the thing is, is it, every one of the characters ends up at one point pursuing like real, you know, relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, the goal is still in some ways to get married. married so it was sometimes fall back on that old, gee, these guys are, why are, why are their lives all surrounded by men? Mm -hmm. Right? It's like that their only purpose was right. to get a man, even though they got to get a lot of men before they got the man. So it stereotypically f well went in that direction. Right. For all four characters. Before we get into a couple of the most important songs from 1988, I think it's important to provide some context about the state of the music industry by 1988, because the industry was experiencing major changes around that time. Compact discs were still the most popular format of listening to music. However, the idea of downloading music using services like Napster would be introduced the following year in 1999. So we are on the precipice here of major, major changes in the music industry. In many ways, 1998 was the last year the music industry would see business as normal. One of the other major changes in the music industry was the mass acceptance of hip-hop and rap into the popular music mainstream. Traditional R&B still ruled the charts, and you'll hear that in the number one song of 1998, which we're going to hear in a bit. More importantly, 1998 was the year record labels recognized the power of hip-hop's appeal across the country. Artists like Jay-Z, DMX, and OutKast became music superstars in 1998 and clearly established hip-hop as a profit-generating genre. Let's single out one of those hip-hop artists who released her debut album in 1998, Lauryn Hill, and her biggest hit from that record, Doo-Wop, that thing. Three weeks since you were looking for your friend. The one you let hit it and never called you again. Remember when he told you he was about to bend your man? You act like you ain't Perhaps it's unfair to label this song and Hill's entire record hip hop because in many ways, this record is a genre-busting phenomena. It's been labeled soul, neo-soul, R&B, progressive rap, and even reggae. Lauren Hill was previously with the band The Fugees, and that band was also considered a crossover success, but Hill's record did something no other female artist before her did. 
It actually debuted at number one on the Billboard Top 200, breaking a record for first week sales by a female artist. That's the that's the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Is that the name of them? Correct. The miseducation of Lauren Hill. Correct. This song confronted how black women were exploited as sex objects in much of the black music videos and album covers at that time. It also challenged the notions that black women exist to prove a man's worth. If Motown would have came along in 1998, this is, might have been what, what it would sound like. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Because there's because the, it, it was such a mishmash of, of genre well, styles. And there was also because there was some old school the sampling that's in it. Some yeah. old school horns from I can't remember what song. What uh, After 20 some years now of listening to just so much crap yeah. coming out of from the hip hop world, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. This still this had a lot of substance. And yeah. I know it's that the entire album did as well. Yeah. Come on. The fact that this song was the number one top-selling song in 1998 and the fact that neither you nor I have ever heard this song, and in my case, even knew of its existence, says something about the state of music in 1998. Yeah. Black music was clearly the top-selling genre of 98. 12 of the top 18 best-selling singles from 1998 were from R&B artists. This song, Too Close, was from the group Next. Definitely a one-hit wonder act, if you, if you call this song a hit. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this song, Ken? Because you're the R&B guy. <sighs> Again, it just amazed me to find out that this song was the number one song of 1998. And it was clear that I wasn't listening to radio, you know, Top 40 radio, to even know about this song. I had no idea that this song existed <laughs> let alone the fact that it was the number one song of the year and that's 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 amazing and because i love r&b slipping under my radar yeah especially i mean this we're getting 1998 we're getting close to the 21st century which is yeah. when you i start losing time i know thing. But i know for it to slip under your radar yeah yeah and it was the, it was the classic boy band sound like boys to men and all of those, you know, and sync Backstreet Boys sound. It had that, you know, sort of harmonious sort of blend of male voices. And I listened to the song a couple of times to prepare myself to talk about it. And there is not anything substantive there enough for me to go on about it. I think it's a, it's sort of a one-hit wonder that has had its moment, and it's over. This song introduced the world. To Britney Spears. Thank God. Baby One More Time was released as a single in 1998, but it became 1999's best-selling single and one of the most successful songs in pop music. She was this cute, adorable ex-Mickey Mouse singer who had this irresistible schoolgirl look, personified, of course, in the famous video uh, for this song. Her voice was okay, but let's remember the state of female pop singers up to this point. You had singers like Whitney Houston, Christina Aguilera, Celine Dion, and Mariah Carey, who were more belted-out divas, and along comes this sweet, innocent, decent singer with a refreshing look and style about her that definitely resonated with young girls at the time. 
It's hard to deny the song isn't catchy. I mean, the song's first four notes Wait, is as memorable as the Jaws theme. You accuse me a lot of times of hyperbole in this show. I think you might have gone a little too far here. This is one of those songs that you play the first note. Nine out of ten people are going to know that song. Baby, hit me baby All one right. more time. I was always amazed that this song didn't generate more controversy relative to the song's title, or actually lack of title, I should say. I mean, the song title should clearly be Hit Me Baby One More Time. And believe it or not, that's what the song was originally titled. In fact, the R&B group, TLC, passed on the song at that time because of the implication of physical abuse. However, Spears' record company removed the two words hit me from the title and the song would be released as baby comma one more time cliff you know this about me i love pop music you and do and sometimes just bubblegum pop you just satisfies me hit me baby one more time our last song 1998 is a country song who doesn't know what i'm talking about Who's never left home? Who's never struck out? In the 90s, successful country music started. Some of these artists like Shania Twain, mm -hmm. they took on these very glammy pop associations and, and meshed it into the country. And it's, it, and it's still going on this, to this day. Country purists certainly would argue that country music became watered down in the 90s, that it became, that it crossed over too far to pop music. And the group that we're listening to right now, the chicks were clearly targeted for being one of the acts to dilute the authenticity, the old school country sound. Right, and I would argue that it's one of the reasons why I like the artists formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, because they were one of the few country acts in the 90s and now into the 2000s who I thought made a lot of attempts and succeeded in connecting to the roots mm -hmm. of, of country. I agree. Right. The song that we're talking about here is Wide Open Spaces. Yeah. And it came from their album of same name. Yes. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, as I mentioned, they were the artists formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. They dropped the Dixie. Yeah, about uh, two years ago. From I think. their name about two years ago. I actually did see the Dixie Chicks in concert. I think in 1999, as part of the tour for this song and album, I was blown away by the musicianship of that band. Now, Natalie Maine's solid voice, I don't know what degree of musicianship she has on her instruments, but the other two the, the females, the sisters, yeah, they they, they picked up every freaking instrument multi, off the stage. They're both multi-instrumentalists, and, yes. and, and, and then the band that they had, I walked away that night becoming a Dixie Chicks fan because mm -hmm. of the live performance. Uh, this song, though, uh, Wide Open Spaces, uh, was number one on the U.S. Country Singles Chart and spent four weeks there in November of 1998. It's a touching song because it does paint this portrait of a, a mother and a father with their what they think of their little girl who's no longer a little girl anymore, right, right. who's about to you know head out on her own, and you gotta let them fly. Yeah. Cliff, it's time to reveal our personal favorite entertainment release from 1998. I picked a movie. The movie is The Thin Red Line, directed by one of my favorite directors, Terrence Malick. I only saw this film for the first time within the last year or two, and I 
was blown away. It easily moved on to my list of the best war movies of all time. And for me, it's a better war movie than Saving Private Ryan. I agree. It tells the story of a group of soldiers during the fierce battle of Guadalcanal in the South Pacific during World War II. It's an amazing star-studded cast, including Sean Penn, Woody Harrelson, George Clooney, but the film's main protagonist is a relatively unknown actor, Cavazell, I'm going to say Jim Cavazell was the main actor, who delivered a remarkable performance, and I've always been amazed that he never went on to become a bigger star. This is a thinking person's movie, much like all Malick films. There are numerous moments throughout this film that deeply, deeply moved me. It's a film that stuck with me long after seeing it. Great film. Like so many great films, The Thin Red Line was based off of a book, James Jones's 1962 novel of same name. I'm going to go with one of my all-time favorite albums, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road by Lucinda Williams. I don't want you anymore cuz you took my joy. I don't want you anymore. You took my joy. You took my joy. I want it back. Car Wheels on a Gravel Road explores a variety of music genres including country, pop, blues, and folk. The lyrics evoke imagery of Williams' life while living in the deep south. Discussing events that occurred in nondescript locations like back roads and dilapidated shacks, Lucinda Williams brings you the region's rugged beauty without subjecting you to its horrific politics. I mean, that woman has put out a remarkable catalog of work, and Car Wheels, I'm so glad you singled that out because that was one of my favorite albums in the late 90s. And it's her best. Yeah. Well, that does it for this show. If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in the episode, the history, the films, the music, and TV discuss, please visit our website, kenandclick.com. There you will find additional reading suggestions, Spotify song lists, letterboxed movie lists, and an opportunity to contact us about what you like and don't like about the show. In next week's show, we cover 2018, a mega year for superhero movies, and we'll talk about two. The Avengers, Infinity War, and Black Panther. For television debuts, we'll talk about Cobra Kai and Succession. And for music, you'll hear songs from Drake, Marin Morris and Zed, and Childish Gambino. Please share Your View Mirror with Ken and Cliff with your friends, family, Sarah Jessica Parker, Natalie Maines, mm-hmm. anybody else had a crush on. You can always find us on KenandCliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Your View Mirror with Ken and Cliff. Look for my joy, go to slide down, look for my joy.